Dose is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Steve Krauss, healthcare partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and Trevor Price, CEO of Oxian Partners and general partner of Town Hall Ventures. The guys talk to leaders from various aspects of healthcare and cover personal stories, entrepreneurship, investing, and have a few laughs, many at each other's expense. All right, Andrew Dreyfus. I love this podcast. You love this guy. He's great. Just a great human being, clearly a great leader. Like, you'd want to go work for him, right? 100%. And also, like, super broad and deep when it comes to all aspects of healthcare policy and healthcare itself. Like, he went from, like, talking about every single corporate structure of every single blue, which I guess he should know, but literally down to, is it a co-op? Is it for-profit? Is it a you new know, every single state? to like could speak endlessly about the pros and cons of Obamacare and Medicare for all. And We've had leaders on this podcast who were far more political yeah. and far more measured, yeah. who run far less high profile companies yeah. that are far smaller. And we took him all over the spectrum. He was willing to talk about and he wasn't There was no guarded. timeouts, there was yeah. no off the records. Yeah, there's nothing. He handled it all with transparency. And what was amazing is this, it wasn't like he had to like frame us. Now maybe we were asking really easy questions, but he was right, like- right. <laughs> Right. He's like, I've been in front of Senate panels and you guys Seriously. are like, you guys are, you guys are like senator from like, or like. I don't know about you. Like sometimes these podcasts, you're checking, like we got five. I'm like, yeah, I could have stayed forever. I could have gone on and on. We actually literally couldn't stay forever, but we almost did. Yeah. He was I mean, like, okay. was his over. assistant knocked on the door, actually. He yeah, was like, you guys right. got to go. And we're like, can you please yeah, leave us go, alone? Yeah, we, we need more time <laughs> with Andrew. He is great. Massachusetts as a state is an incredible healthcare yeah, kind of microcosm, and he is a huge leader in and this. And as a real Bostonian, as opposed to you. You're not a real Bostonian. You're from Hartford. Amorous. You're a Whalers fan. <laughs> Love the Whale. I don't even think you're a real Red Sox fan. Not as hard as you, but I love the Whale, okay? Don't fuck with Ron Francis, yeah. all right? Listen, as a Bostonian, this guy is like a leader in our city. And no as question. a Bostonian, a leader in our city, a leader in healthcare, therefore he's a leader in the nation in healthcare. Uh, Great guy. Yeah, really Thank you, Andrew. Thank Enjoy, you. Enjoy, people. All right, we're really excited to have Andrew Dreyfus on The Healthy Dose today. I get the pleasure of working with Andrew as part of uh, being part of the investment committee of Blue Cross Blue Shield, but he's a guy that I've admired for a long time as someone who really loves healthcare. I'd say Andrew is one of the most progressive thinking leaders in healthcare who, and in Massachusetts, as we'll talk about, is a model for progressive American healthcare politics and policy, and Andrew's been involved in many different those areas. So we're really excited to have you. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So hopefully we'll have some fun. So let's start off. Not every young boy who grew, who grew up seven. in Boston, right? <laughs> right who grew right. up in Boston, they probably wanted to be, I don't Ted know, Carl Strimsky at that time. Right. I think that's probably your vintage. Right. They don't think about growing up to be a healthcare insurance CEO. So take us back to uh, yeah. young Andrew and okay. tell us about your childhood and what you thought you'd be doing at this point in right. your life. Well, I did grow up in the Boston area and was very tied to the city. And both my parents were born in Boston. All my grandparents were born in the Boston area as well and grew up here. So I, I felt a great sense of location here. Kind of paradoxically, my father was a property and casualty insurance 
executive for a small brokerage firm that he co-owned. And he always wanted one of his three kids to go into the business. And we all kind of said, insurance? You've got to be kidding me. And all of us, for the most part, studied the humanities. I studied literature and philosophy in college. And so I think insurance was the farthest thing from my mind. When I was growing up, this was the age of Watergate and kind of crusading journalists. And I wanted to be... Sounds familiar. Yeah, I wanted to be, <laughs> I wanted to be a reporter. And I was the editor of my high school newspaper. And I worked for a college news office. And my first job out of college, I was the editor of a still going uh, weekly newspaper in one of Boston's most interesting <laughs> neighborhoods, the, south, the south End of Boston. So okay. I was the, the South End News? The South End News. I was the second editor six months into its existence and did that for, uh, for several years, and it was still one of the best jobs I've ever had. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so how did you get from newspaper editor to head of one of the largest Blue Cross? Yeah, it, it was not a traditional path. And so after a few years of being a journalist and being an observer, I wanted to be more of a participant. And what happened was one governor, Michael Dukakis, was elected governor of Massachusetts. And I joined his administration, first kind of a project manager working on a whole series of human services issues. During that period, healthcare did become very hot issues. So uh, it was the early phases of the HIV epidemic. It was the area where people started to realize that we were kind of mistreating people with mental health problems and addiction problems, kind of warehousing them in institutions. It's when healthcare cost containment started to become a big issue. And eventually where coverage and access became a big issue. And in 1988, our state legislature at the governor's urging passed the first universal health care law, one that was later repealed, but gave me a taste of both the intricacies of American health policy and the, the potential promise of covering people without insurance. And so I kind of gravitated to health policy when I was in the administration. Can, and so, can I ask you guys, a you're both obviously Bostonians and I obviously don't have a read on every kind of state healthcare administration, but it feels to me when I kind of think through my head of people who've worked in Massachusetts state healthcare, how many of them have gone on to pretty high impact roles yeah, in the private that. sector? The reason for that is that you are actually, and, and this is one of the reasons I advise graduate students and young I people in their career to go into government because A, you get kind of a really wide perspective. You kind of get this wide open aperture on what's going on in healthcare. But you're also given significant responsibility at a fairly young age. Mm -hmm. If you demonstrate talent, you can have a lot of kind of management and administrative training that's harder to earn, I think, in some ways in the private sector and sometimes slower. Right. I'd also say that it helps that we have progressive universities that are pretty deep in healthcare policy, right? I mean, you've got several good schools of public health here. You've got pretty progressive health systems. I mean, granted that, well, in terms of actually being academic in their thought and creating yeah, policy, in terms of like leading thinking around public health, that's happening. You know, a lot of the people who, who formulated the Obama policies, right? Both the HCIT advancements as yeah, it's well It's bipartisan as, here because you had Romney Care right. and you obviously got, had- I mean, look at Charlie Baker is a great example of this, right? Ted Kennedy. Corrupt in government. Right. Yep. And just to make a point I think you're both making is there has been, especially in the last decade, 
kind of history of bipartisanship, which stands in stark contrast to what goes on in Washington, yep. where this kind of partisan gridlock and paralysis. And as a consequence of that, you had, we have a state reform law that was passed in 2006 that more than a decade later is still operating successfully. Let's tackle this, if you don't mind, and let's yeah. take it to the federal level, because we're recording this on, what, what's today, April 25th. So April 22nd, I believe, Alex Azar, Seema Verma, Adam Bowler came out with the Primary Cares Initiative. Right, right. And we talk about the gridlock and the animosity between the parties, but what's interesting to me is you know, they are like seriously reaffirming and in fact, maybe really being major catalysts for a lot of what was not necessarily the public persona of the Affordable Care Act, but was very much the intent of the Affordable Care Act, which was shift to value. Yeah. And they are taking that and they're pouring gas on that yeah. market right now. And that is interesting coming from, you know, value-based care seems to be very much of a bipartisan right. initiative. Well, I agree with you completely. And it's very exciting because exactly as you said, the kind of moving from the fee-for-service system to a value-based reimbursement system was one of the big tenants that was probably not fully understood in the Affordable Care Act. And no, it was exchanges and death panels well, and all this other became in the face of it. Yeah. But it may be actually, when we right. look at it right. 20 or 30 years from now, totally agree. it may be I that totally his, historians will look back and see that. And initially in the Trump administration, there was a lot of questions in the field and in Washington about whether the new administration was actually going to support well, it. And right, the price, price took bundles, <laughs> right, 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 right. Thank, thankfully, he took a jet as well, and that cost him that piece. <laughs> thankfully, so. I think right. thankfully, because right. I don't think because of some of his lobbying initiatives and who he represented in terms of the American Medical Association. Well, it turns Association. out orthopods don't necessarily like value-based care. Right. Right. service worked pretty well right. for them. Right. 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 Anyway, sorry. So, and ahead, and what it caused, <laughs> by the way, it caused a huge pause right. in the market totally. for, I remember this. for 12 to 18 yeah. months, kind of post-election until... Very recently, and I completely and you felt agree that at it. your level because I felt that at the investing level, people just like got scared about no question. Now, Ma now, Massachusetts is a little bit of an exception, and we right. can talk, we about, talk that. about that. Yeah. But around the country, and we definitely felt it. And when I was talking to other blues CEOs, they were all, "I'm not sure we're really moving in that direction." And then starting with Seema Verdon, but then really when Secretary Azar came in and the hiring of Adam Bowler really sent a message, and they have been systematically yeah, time after time. Now, they have a slightly different perspective on it than a, let's say, a Hillary Clinton administration might have. What is that looked. perspective? Because I don't understand. What, what, when you well, say that. I think it's a little less government oversight. Okay. It's a little more trying to look to the private market for innovation. It's probably a little more disruptive, to be honest with you, which I think could be a good thing, and wanting to kind of accelerate. On the other hand, they've also been you know, I think in a disappointment for me, kind of fairly aggressive in not trying to support further expansions that were called for under the ACA. So they take a different Medicaid view. expansions? Medicaid or? expansions and, and some of the experimentation around work-based programs and things like that actually look to be kind of limiting expansion. They've been defunding outreach and enrollment efforts and some other things. So, you know, from my perspective, it's a mixed view, but definitely on the value-based payment. And I've had a chance to talk to Secretary Azar a couple times, and he's clearly committed to it. And I think you may know that a few years after our state reform law passed in 06, we had already begun working on a um, value-based payment model, which was is so old at this point that it was developed before the phrase ACO was coined by Elliot Fisher. You had your own phrase, AQC. A AQC, and it's the most heavily evaluated 
in one of the largest commercial payment reform initiatives. Let, let's stay on that for a second, because I want to both talk about the successes as well as the lessons, because I think it pretends for what the federal government's trying to do, right? So Trevor and I interviewed Patrick Conway right before he was about to start at Blue Cross Blue Shield North Carolina, and he said, this was about a year and a half ago, he said he wanted to get like 50% of his members to sort it's of an AQC. That, right. Well, 50% within two years and like right. 90% within right. five years. Right. Where are you in Massachusetts? Now you're 10 years into it? Yeah, so we are actually a little more than that. So first of all, from a provider perspective, 85% of primary care physicians and 89% of specialists now accept this value-based form of payment from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. In terms of our membership, it's less than that, it's probably closer to half, but it's very significant and growing. And it's now kind of the standard way with that we pay for care. And this is a global or this is Yeah, a- so this is a, what we call it a global budget when we were developing it. I said that if anyone used the word capitation, I would find them in the company just because it had such bad associations with kind of California and managed care in the 80s and 90s. But it is a fixed per member per month payment that we negotiate with physician practices and in some cases with their hospital partners. It's an attributed plan to primary care physicians. We do it now both on our HMO business and importantly on our PPO business even where our members have not selected a primary care physician because we've demonstrated, not to get too wonky on you guys, that we have an attribution model that is valid and we persuaded our physician partners it's valid even for our PPO members. There's shared risk with big upside potential both for achieving quality goals and we have a group of 40 or so quality measures, inpatient, outpatient, process, outcomes, patient experience and increasingly looking to patient reported outcome measures. And as I said, it's been heavily studied. The last study, which came out several years ago, found that we were kind of approaching that holy grail in healthcare of better care at lower costs, or at least at a slower rate of growth in costs. We hope to see the next analysis of the first eight years of it published soon. And for you as CEO of a health plan, you know, we're going to get a little bit into this, but you're measured on, obviously, growth. You're measured on cost, which is basically medical loss ratio, right? right? right. At that, let's put it at the, the unit level. You're measured on sort of patient satisfaction, I assume, right. or member satisfaction. Right. So my question is, MLR, is it better under an AQC? Well, you know, program? so it's interesting because, Steve, you said, you know, you measure yourself on growth and MLR and things like that. I'm not sure that's actually how we measure ourselves. So just, you asked earlier, you know, what, what, what is a Blue Cross plan? I think a lot of our members probably don't yeah. know fundamentally what the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association is. Yeah. What is Blue Cross? What is Blue Shield? Right. What is the overall federated network of right. plans? So the history of that is that the Blue Cross plans traditionally provided hospital insurance and the Blue Shield plans were set up to provide insurance for physician services. In most of the states, they merged, like in Massachusetts, where there's one Blue Cross Blue Shield plan that covers the entire state. Do you operate independently? Like your board is an independent yeah. board. Does someone from the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association sit on your board or? They do not. And so we have an independent board and we are unique in this respect. We're charted actually as a public charity by Massachusetts law. There are a lot of other not-for-profit plans. They happen not to be public charities, and it has a modest difference. But just back to you know your earlier question, Steve, which is so who's our shareholder? It's the community, and you know to some extent our customers and our members. And so when we measure success, we're not measuring it particularly by shareholder return. What of course we're measuring it by affordability. Are we affordable for the community? And that's an important thing, especially in a high-cost state like Massachusetts. Are we delivering value 
to our members and to our customers? Are we improving community health, which matters a lot to us as a community not-for-profit resource? And so look at medical loss ratio. It's interesting. Under the Affordable Care Act, as you know, there was a requirement that 85% of all healthcare spending be all premium dollars be spent on medical care. Well, Massachusetts actually set that higher, initially at 90, hmm. and then they lowered it to 88. If you go below that, you actually have to rebate to your customers. We've never rebated a dollar to our customers, which means that we keep our administrative spending modest, and we try to return as much of the premium dollar back to the community in terms of care for our members. So Blue Cross Blue Shield plans, majority of them are not-for-profit. So I guess the question, and may not want to, maybe you do because right. you're the right steward, but right. like, not-for-profit does not mean barely break even. Right. Right. And Blue Cross Blue Shield plans, I believe, I mean, I'm not a, an astute student yes. of their balance sheets, but they've been doing very, very well. Yeah. And so, like, where do the not-for-profit profits? Yes. Well, get- so just before I answer that question, you're absolutely right with your question. And we describe ourselves as kind of a hybrid organization. So on the one hand, we have $8 billion worth of revenue. We could be a Fortune 500 company in terms of size. We need to compete in a very highly competitive market with companies like United, now CVS, Aetna, now ESI, Cigna, big companies with huge amounts of capital and a lot to invest. And we also have young, upstart, disruptive companies in our market. And we have, by the way, some very highly regarded not-for-profit plans like Harvard, Pilgrim, and Tufts. So it's a highly competitive market. We have to operate very efficiently. We also, interestingly, and we call this the N of one problem, because we are like no other plan in the country and in our market, we pay taxes. So we're not for profit, but we pay taxes. What taxes do we pay? We pay federal taxes, we pay state taxes. The only tax we're exempt from are local property taxes, and we actually make payments in lieu of taxes. And as a not for profit, we don't try to you know, solicit contributions or raise money or do tax exempt financing. And so we are this kind of odd hybrid organization that way. We have to run ourselves as a efficient, capital intensive, complex business that competes with big publicly traded companies. On the other hand, we have this community responsibility we take very seriously. So back to the, your margin question, not to avoid it, we tend to shoot for a very modest an operating margin of between 0 and 1% and a total margin of between 1% and 3%. That's If you look back over a decade, that's about what we do. It's hard, and sometimes we feel a little constrained. We also have certain regulatory constraints on us on how much so-called risk-based capital we're allowed to have. And so we have to kind of live in this kind of narrow world of being a big company, being in a highly competitive market, needing to invest in our business, especially a technology-intensive business. At the same time, we have this responsibility to the community. One of the trends we've seen with health plans is vertical integration. Yeah, I think in many ways started with United and Aetna with Optum and Healthogen, right. yes. where they started getting into the care delivery and care yeah. management. You've got Anthem goes out and buys Caremore and yeah. Aspire. We just talked about Cigna buys Evacor right. and ESI. Humana has done investments right. and joint ventures with sure. super innovative players. So you've got this massive, you know, monstrosity right. of providers right, right. that are all your neighbors here. You got right. partners and, right. and Brigham and Boston right. Medical right. Center. Like, do you see yourself getting into the care delivery yeah. business? Well, it's, it's a great question. And what I would say is, I'm gonna be a little evasive as yes and no, but I'll tell you exactly what I mean by that is right now, because of the nature of the delivery system in Massachusetts, which as you suggest, is highly consolidated, 
especially around large academic medical centers and kind of hub and spoke models that are fairly, they're stable and in some cases growing and even further consolidation recently with the Beth Israel Deaconess merger yeah. with Leahy. And so it's unlikely that we would either try to acquire or, or they would want to acquire us. However, we do believe we need to have very deep partnerships with each of these large systems. About 80% of our payments within a few years will go to half a dozen or fewer systems. And one move we made recently wow. was the largest independent practice in Massachusetts was the Atrius Harvard Vanguard practice, the old Harvard Community Health Plan. And they ended up signing a, a seven-year agreement with us to take our value-based model, which we discussed earlier, apply it on a larger scale with them to a broader set of populations on a full risk basis. You mentioned a moment ago, you talked about Landmark and you talked yeah. about some of these innovative companies yeah. that you worked with. And I think one of the fundamental challenges for a lot of the companies that Steve and I work with or we invest in and is the process by which they get on your radar screen, they present their value proposition, they get through your technology process. Like these are 12, 18, 24 month sales cycles. Right. And frankly, those sales cycles can often kill really good ideas. Right. I think if they can, if they're capitalized to be able to get through that and they can survive. What advice would you give to the entrepreneurs out there who are shaping disruptive or innovative businesses that appeal to people who are underwriting risk on populations? Right. Like, how do they best approach uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield in Massachusetts? What resonates? What are some of the ways that they can effectively talk to you or your peers in yeah. the blues industry? We are interested in kind of working with them on proofs of concept. And so I think one thing is to get in early when they haven't fully designed, whether it's their technology solution or another solution, because we are not the most agile of companies. I'll just speak for ourselves, but I think it's probably true for other blue plans. We have a lot of legacy technology systems we have to deal with. And so it's not the kind of plug and play, you know, cloud-based data lake, you know, easy organization that more contemporary organizations might have. And so I think it's better if they come in early and so we can actually talk through the technology while they're developing as opposed to saying, here's our point solution. Let's just plug and play with you because it's almost never mm -hmm. a plug and play with us. So that's one thing. I think, you know, understanding where we're going is important. You know, you asked about net promoter score really early. So we're really focused on that. So what would radically improve? We, we believe we have one of the best net promoter scores in the country. What among, is it? Among blue plans, it's in the 30s and 40s. And we know that- Why is that? Well, I think, and, and of course, there are different ways to measure net promoter score. Our actual net promoter score on contact would be in the higher, it could be in the 70s or 80s. But let's say our basic net promoter score is in the 30s and 40s. A lot of net promoter scores of some of our competitors are in the negative right. numbers. Our question is, how do we get to 80? You know, how do we be best in class, not just in the insurance health plan field, but in the consumer overall? And why are we high today? Because we have superb member services in our call centers, you know, whether measuring things like first call resolution, and we perform really well, and that is directly connected to net promoter score. Our products are... I think are easier to understand than some, although the high deductible products are a challenge and we see a differentiation on our net promoter score and our high deductible plans versus our non-high deductible plans. Makes sense. And, and you know, that's kind of intuitive, but how do we change that? How do we educate our members early on in the process so they understand? How do we give them tools to actually use them, easy to use digital tools, you know, where they can shop for 
like commoditized services like imaging and lab and stuff like that. So we're kind of working on all that. But we have a ways to go, and we fundamentally have to make it easier for people. You know, it used to be like a few years ago, we did something, you know, the, the EOB, the famous EOB, the Explanation and Benefit Form, you know, the most confusing document people get, this is not a bill, but it looks like a bill. And so our response three years ago was, or four years ago, was let's simplify this so it's easy to understand. It looks like your best utility bill, looks like your Amex bill, your Visa bill. And we did that. And I don't think our members cared very much. Really? You know, so the question was, how do you eliminate this? How do you make it? And there's certain regulatory restraints on that. How do you make it online? How do you, you know, give them access to it in a mobile way? And so we just have to change. So I was just going to say, I mean, health insurance has like a notoriously bad name, right? And so I'm curious as you sit here, I mean, you're obviously thinking a lot about this competition. Right. How do you think about these startup health plans? I mean, yeah. they come at this with a much more, you know, devoted, bright, yeah. Uh, Oscar, Clover, yeah. they come with much more of a consumer-centric view. They do. I know you know one of them very well. Right. Um, but do you worry about those guys? Do you um, think they're going to change the industry, or do you yeah. think they've got a lot to learn because yeah. it's really hard to run a well, health insurance company? Yeah, it would be naive not to worry about them because we've seen almost every other industry be disrupted at some point, and so we have to assume that will happen to us. I'll go back, though, to your assumption and challenge it a little bit that you know people don't like health insurance. In some ways, you know, health insurance is a little like Congress. People don't like Congress, but they like their congressperson. People love Blue Cross Blue Shield. I mean, when we do kind of reputational surveys of Blue Cross Blue Shield in Massachusetts, we are up there with, you know, Children's Hospital and Mass General and, and MIT and Harvard University. So how, do you, how do you equate that to a 30 to 40 net promoter score? So I think, you know, when people think of us, they have great associations with the brand and they think of us as the highest quality. But when they actually measure the experience, there's still a lot of work we need to do because they're frustrated and they just think it's too expensive. I think it's partly service, it's partly affordability, it's partly no surprises. People hate surprises. And right now, Especially like, given the cost. Yeah, a classic example is you go for your annual physical, there's no copayment deductible under the Affordable Care Act, they send you to do some labs, you're still in your deductible, suddenly you get a $275 bill for a lab for a visit that you thought was free. Well, that's going to make you unhappy. Now, so what can we do about that? So. We could use advanced analytics and other information we have to find out when people are going to their annual visit. We could call them up, physically call them up, or contact them in some other way by text and say, you have your annual visit. If you get labs, we want you to know under your policy to be charged. And by the way, if you actually use this lab rather than that lab, you might save 50%. So you're spending a lot of time trying to get ahead of the deductible, essentially? Yeah, we are. The deductible is part of life. Yeah, mean, it's here to stay. It's, it's here to stay, although I think the runway on the size of the deductibles, we're probably kind of running out there. But what we have to do is, especially for those companies that have health savings accounts paired with the deductible, make sure people understand them, know how to use them. You think it's interesting. Do you think health insurance companies, because they're not very consumer-oriented, you know, I'm yeah, right, broadly, right. Yeah. just miss the boat on this. They, you know, they didn't quite realize that the deductible was going to become first dollar healthcare was going to be the first experience people had and didn't do the stuff that maybe some other customer service organizations, you yeah, know, oriented I, industries I, I, get I, out ahead of it. I to your point? That's a fair criticism. And, and I think that's partly you know, back to the question, how do you become a company that thinks about MPS and thinks about member ex and consumer experience all the time is as you plan products, you segment yeah, as you plan products, you're going to start to anticipate these problems for our members and, and being anticipatory is really important. Right, because you said your NPS on your regular members versus your high deductible members is different. Right, that's right, all the deductible, right, right. I assume. And yeah. the confusion around I wanted to 
shift a bit, and we had Gary Gottlieb on yes. the podcast, and yeah. Massachusetts is a notorious state in healthcare for many reasons. Right. A leader in many ways, a yeah. indicator of policy right. direction. It's also notorious for being quite expensive. It is. And so we asked him, who's at fault? Yeah. And so I'll ask you the same question. Yeah. What I would say He is, didn't say you, by the way, specifically. Yeah, yeah that's good. Well, <laughs> he said Andrew Dreyfus. Right, 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 right. Well, yeah. He knows where- He answered of, very, He was very probably skilled very, very yeah. diplomatic about it. Look, the most strongest reason why we are more expensive is because we have a higher use of academic medical centers for routine care. There's just no question about that. And that is at the heart of the answer, and any kind of honest economic analysis will show that. Now, it is true that if you actually look at our per capita spending, but then you adjust it for personal income, we're actually in the middle of the pack, and our premiums are in the middle of the pack, but on a pure per capita basis, this is the most expensive place to get healthcare in the world. We have a few minutes left. I want to talk, I think we've got a unique opportunity here, because you you're both a leader nationally as an executive, but also very involved in public policy. Right, so I want right. to do a little bit of a okay. Trevor loves these, a little lightning yes. round to get, okay. your, to get right. your views on things. So let's start with Obamacare. Yeah. What's the lessons learned? I think the lesson learned that when implemented properly, we can significantly reduce the number of uninsured, bring people into the insurance system and improve health actually. And we have evidence of that in Massachusetts where we started seven or eight years earlier. There's also a lesson that healthcare remains a deeply partisan issue that has paralyzed Congress, forced people to go to litigation instead of kind of compromise in public policy. And unlike Medicare and Medicaid, which were controversial when they passed and then people kind of accepted them, we're still fighting this one. And you think 50 years from now, if Medicaid expansion is allowed to run out, it'll have massive decrease in public health costs? Well, massive decrease in public health costs. That would only come if we really started shift dollars away from health care towards health and social services, because that's a lesson of the Western European countries, is that they spend less on health care and more on social services and health. We're a long way away from that. That would be a, such a serious disruption to the delivery system, but I think we'll need it over time, and I'm encouraged that people are starting to look at the social determinants of health. The second topic I want to talk about is value-based care, just quickly. We talked about how you're a leader, how the market's moving there. What are some of the lessons that you learned, the hard lessons learned, the failures that the federal government should do? Yeah, should well, take? I think one hard lesson is that you really have to move rapidly away from fee-for-service, and you have, to, you have to send a message to physicians that we're not turning back. Because if they feel that fee-for-service is still viable, they're just going to take baby steps into value-based. They'll call it value-based, they'll put out a lot of press releases, but they're not really doing it. Do you think fever service is gone in Massachusetts? I think it will be history, because now we have the state Medicaid program, the ongoing work at CMS, our own work, and some of the other local private plans. I think it will be gone over time. I mean, we may still have a fever service chassis underneath it, because you need a way to kind of process claims and actually attribute care and members and all that, but I certainly hope so because it's such a deeply inflationary system that you have to kind of stop it. Drug pricing? Drug pricing, I think we'll just see around the margins, the federal government over the next 18 months. I think presidential election will be important in this respect as well the congressional elections. I think we haven't yet reconciled our kind of desire for funding great medical discovery with you know, having a regulatory arm. Again, every other Western European nation has sorted that out, but it's a very different environment. And the pharma lobby is very, very powerful. And finally, 
I guess the topic du jour of Democrats these days is where do we end up on Medicare yeah, for all? Medicare for all. Well, first thing I would say is it's a good debate to have. So unlike some of my peers who kind of want to just oppose it, I say, bring it on. Let's talk about it. But then let's really talk about what are our goals. It doesn't I, put Blue Cross Blue Shield or other insurance companies out of business in uh, mind? Well, in its purest form, it would do that. I think we need a uniquely American system. I think it may look more like the German, Swiss, or Dutch systems than it will the UK or Canadian systems. We already have half of all the payments in healthcare come from state and federal governments. So I think we'll have, I hope, get everyone covered, do it more affordably, but do it in a uniquely American way. I really enjoyed this conversation. Really enjoyable. Thank yeah. you for doing this. Yeah. Trevor's going to go to cocktail parties now and talk about how he knows the difference between Blue Cross and Blue Shield <laughs> yeah, and mutuals. Right. Thank God. I yeah, that out. exactly. Finally, <laughs> finally. Yeah, great. Thank well, you Sandra. so much. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to A Healthy Dose. Please subscribe through iTunes, and if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, please tweet us at a healthy dose pod. Yeah.